Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Please stay tuned for the Bible reading. Today's reading is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 18. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord, the ark of God, dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like a great, the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and, I, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall, not, shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I had appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and shall be to me a son, and he commits. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me from thus far? Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Amen indeed. Fantastic. Well, hi everybody. It's great to see you. My name is Howard. I am the pastor here of Westminster Chapel, and everyone is welcome here at our church. Um, We're a church for all sorts of shapes, colors, and sizes. We really hope that you would find today, if you're new to our church family, in person, online, a home away from home, an oasis in the city of London, a place just to be real, who you are. There is a place for you at Westminster Chapel Um, And you've joined us today in a series, it's called The Bible in 12 Verses. Um, We're in week six of that. It is a a big picture look at history's most influential book. And it's an invitation to you, whoever you are, to find your part in the ultimate story that shapes all of reality. Now, it's been said by one biblical scholar that this passage that we're looking at today is the most important passage in the whole of the Old Testament. In all its 39 books, in all of its thousands, some 20,000 plus verses, it is these verses, he says, they're the most important, the most critical, the most essential in the entire Old Testament, this first part of the Bible. I wonder if you could answer the question, why? Why does he make that case? Why? We've covered quite a few verses already in this series, and he's saying, forget those, this is the one. This is the one. I wonder why. Well, we're going to try and answer that today, but this isn't an answer. It's a little bit of a big sort of picture understanding of just this verse, is that all of the promises we've heard about that were given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 22, a couple of weeks ago, are now being passed on to this figure in biblical history. He's called David and all of his descendants. And we get 197 Hebrew words here that are said by the prophet Nathan to David. And those 197 words, they're going to describe the next 400 plus years of history. God's faithfulness to keep his promise to kings, the good, bad, and ugly kings that are going to come down through the centuries. God's going to discipline them for sure, but he's never going to forsake them. His love will remain steadfast throughout. It's the sovereignty of God. That's why we pray, oh, sovereign Lord. We've talked about the sovereignty of God. It's a pillow to rest your head upon. It's a parachute to give you the courage to go and be bold in this world. So having set that scene, I now want to come a little bit more into the specifics of this passage, particularly the kind of pastoral application. Why are we looking at what should change in our lives? And I'm going to do that by asking you a question. Do ungrateful people annoy you (laughs) as much as they do me? (laughs) Um, I heard a story, it's a true story, uh, about a girl, she's at school, and she puts a brick on her new Mustang car so that the gas pedal would go down, so that it would be crashed and totaled, ruined. Why did she do that to this wonderful car that her parents gave her for her 16th birthday? Because it was the wrong color. That's ungrateful, right? That's bad. Jesus tells a story about 10 lepers. 
Now, lepers, back in the ancient world, it was the most crippling, debilitating, horrible condition to have. It was ostracizing. It would exclude you from pretty much everybody except for other lepers. You were isolated. You couldn't work. You couldn't earn an income. You were thought to be nothing of. It was shameful and humiliating to have this awful condition. Some of the lepers would have to wear bells on their clothes so that you could hear them coming, so you would run away from them. Ten lepers come to Jesus He heals every single one of them. But then it's commented in his first century biography about him, particularly highlighted that only one, only one out of the ten came back to say thank you. Now I want to get hold of those nine and say, what do you think you're doing? How ungrateful is that? I want to wag my finger at them. How dare you be so ungrateful you have no just think what what's happened in your life you've been utterly transformed but I'm one of them it's a description of 90% of the human race now you might be thinking I'm in the 10% I'm like sat on the back row you know the holy back row here the 10% of the super people you know the thankful ones no 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 the whole point is that At some point, you're going to be in the 90%. That's the probability here. You know, no one's 10% thankful all of the time. We're we're all going to be guilty. We're all unthankful. I'm unthankful. I'm ungrateful. You're ungrateful to our parents, to our partners, to our friends, to our family members, and especially to God. Especially to God. So this is the first point of four points that I want to make to you today from this passage. All of them are application questions. And it's this. It is right to honor God. Are you? Are you? Let's think about David for a moment. He was a forgotten shepherd boy out in the fields. Neglected. Unwanted. Even by his own father. And God took him, God found him, God raised him up, God made him into a mighty man of great influence and authority. And God says, I was with you, I was with you when you faced Goliath the giant, I was with you out in the wilderness wanderings when you had the the crazy Saul and his army trying to murder and kill you. I was with you in all the military victories that you did, now I am with you in this place of rest, you're in this capital city, Jerusalem, I'm with you in this glorious palace that you've made of luxury out of the best materials of the day, which was cedar wood. But David is seeing all this goodness and he's saying there's something that's not good. It's not good. I have all of this, but what about God? Now he didn't need the prophet Haggai to come. Now down through the years, centuries later, the people of God did need this prophet Haggai um, to come. (laughs) They needed him to come and speak to them. And I think we often do need today because he comes to say, say, uh, is it right for you to be living in your paneled houses, to be making your life so comfortable and luxurious and easy when the Lord's house lies in ruins? Is it right? David David didn't need the prophet Haggai to to come and say that. Because there was something in him, something right. That he, he, he's a man after God's own heart. He wants to honor the Lord. I want to do something that would please him. I want to show my appreciation and thankfulness to him. See, it is right to give God thanks and praise. 
Every human being, whoever you are, you're alive because of God. You have breath in your lungs right now because of God. You exist because of Him. If you're a Christian and you've trusted in Him, you have ultimate rest, rest from sin and death and and Satan and all the evils of this world. You ultimately have that, that's coming, and you get an amazing down payment of it now on this earth. We were lost in the fields, forgotten by this world and uncared about, and He came and He found us. He found you. He found you. And he rescues you and he makes you a king and a queen. He's given you his authority to rule for his glory. It is right to honor him, isn't it? It is right to give him thanks and praise with our lives. My question is, are you, are you? How do you honor the Lord? How do you do something for him that that is right and fitting for him with your life? What does it look like? Well, David wanted to build something for the Lord. What does the Lord call us to do? Well, we build not for him, but we build with him. What? The thing that he cares most about in this world, the church. You can't love God and hate his church. That's his bride. He died for his bride. You build, you honor the Lord by building this amongst us, the local church, by attending regularly, by serving, by loving one another in this congregation, being part of a small group, by by giving. It's amazing what people have given, by the way. Praise God. By praying, not just on your own, but together we're, we're praying we're trying to pray in unison with one voice through Acts chapter 4 the specific prayer so that together there would be a unity of our cry to God for what we want to see him do amongst us that's what we that's what we build we build for the Lord because fundamentally our identity is that we are servants verse 5 says this above David he said God calls David he says my servant my servant, David. That's who he was. That's, that's what you are if you're a Christian. You are first and foremost a servant. God doesn't exist to serve you. Other people don't exist to serve you. You exist to serve God. And your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction, your greatest sense of purpose will be found in being a servant. That's the first point about honoring God. It is right to honor God. Are you? To give is better than to receive. The second point is it's wrong to limit God. It's wrong to limit God. Are you doing that? Um, let me just say here, it's, it's wrong to patronize God. It's wrong to think of God here and to say something on the lines of, you know, God, God, you're struggling a little bit, it seems, in London, in the United Kingdom. I think you might need a little bit of my help, you know, a little bit of my money, a little bit of my time. I can help you out a little bit. Now, let me say this as politely as I can to you. God doesn't need your help. He doesn't need you full stop. That sometimes shocks a few people. God is revealed in the scriptures as I am who I am. That name literally means he's the all-sufficient one. The God who relies on nothing and no one for his existence. There's no backstop. There was this before God. No, there was just God. It's, he's the eternal being. He needs nothing. He's complete and of himself. He doesn't need you, but he desires you. He desires your involvement. It's not of necessity that you help. <laughs> it's of love that he seeks your help, that your, your involvement. 
David offers to build a bricks and mortar temple for the Lord, a physical building for God. And there was something good in that. But it was tainted. Because although at first glance it seemed like a good thing, it wasn't a God thing. The prophet Nathan comes along and initially he's like, that seems great to me. But actually when he hears God speak, God says, no, no. Why? Because it was too small. It was too small. It was patronizing to God. God had something far bigger, far greater in mind because God wants to do immeasurably more than we ask or even imagine. He wants to showcase His glory that He is so much beyond humanity. There's a story that I will always remember that God taught me that illustrates this. God always wants to do more. And... uh, it was a time, it was some years back, we didn't have kids. We were coming back from Lanzarote. We'd been on holiday. And we got to the check-in desks, and there was a problem with our flights. You see, there was a connecting flight meant to take us from Lanzarote to Madrid, Madrid back to London. But there wasn't enough time. They changed the, the flight times. There wasn't enough time. So we got to the check-in desk, and they panicked in this very small airport terminal. And they said, I'm really sorry, we can't check you in. Your next flight will leave in 14 hours at 3 a.m. in the morning. Holly's really concerned at this point because she's just started a new job and she needs to be early to work the next day. She's not going to make it, basically, is the issue, to run a lawyer's conference. So she rings her manager from the airport uh, and the manager says, if you're not there, we're cancelling the whole conference. We go back to the check-in desk. We tell them what's going on. Eventually, after 20 minutes, they come back and say, and we, we've obviously been panicking but praying uh, in this time. And they say, we, we can get one of you home if you go now. And in that moment, I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. That's great. I'll take that. I'll settle for that. That's, <laughs> that is wonderful. Holly can go, but I'm here 14 hours. I have no idea what I'm going to do in an airport with basically no services or facilities for 14 hours. But that, that's good enough. You know, crisis over. As I'm having these thoughts to myself, the lady's face, she just sort of lights up. She gets really happy. I can get both of you on a flight right now, but you've got to run to the other terminal with all your luggage. So we're like crazy people now, running with all of our stuff. We get to the other terminal, only there's a whole other queue. And we're at the back of another queue, stood there waiting. No one really says anything to us except... There's no guarantee that you've got a flight. You're just going to have to wait here and we might see what we can do after everybody else has got on board. So another 20 minutes of like uncertainty. What are we doing? Are we, is this right? Is this not right? What, what's going on? Eventually we get to the front of the queue and they say, yes, you can get on. There's space for you. Where? Are we in the baggage hold? Are we going to stand up? I don't know what's going on. We get all the way in. Everybody else has been seated. We're the last people to get on this plane. And the only space that you can see as you look around is that bit in business class that you walk through that I've never been in before. But sure enough, Mr. and Mrs. Satterthwaite, would you like to sit here, please? For real? Would you like a a newspaper? Uh, Is it free? Like, yeah, I'll take it if it's free. Uh, this is new to me. Three-course meal, glass of champagne, loads of leg room, and, and I keep it because I am a geek about little souvenirs, this little jar of balsamic vinegar and, and olive oil like that's, that's still there. It's probably gone totally off now, but, but I'm like, this is insane. I would have settled for one flight, but 
God did so much more. And he underlined it. This is his heart. This is his nature. He's the God of the prodigals, the prodigal son, and he's in the pig muck. And he remembers the goodness of, of God the Father. That's what the par- parable is about. And he turns, turns back and he says, he might just take me back as a hired hand. I'll take that. That's great. I'll be a slave for him. That's okay. And what happens the moment that he comes to his senses, there's the father charging towards him to do what? To hug him and embrace him and to give him a robe and a ring and sandals and to throw a feast in his honor. He's a son who's going to serve, but he's never going to be a slave again. God exceeds expectations. This is what he's like. David wants to build a physical temple of stones, bricks, and mortar for God in a physical place. That's, what, that's the house that David wants to build for the Lord. And God says to him, do you know what, David? That's nice, but I want to do something for you. I want to build a house, a dynasty, a line for you out of flesh and blood, living stones. And it's going to go on for generation after generation after generation, I tell you, on into eternity. Do you see how small David was thinking? And how patronizing it was compared to what God had in mind. I wonder in what ways do we limit God? How are you trying to put God in a box? can't do that, by the way. Are you trying to, where are you limiting what God might do in your family, in your workplace, with your kids, with your career, with your neighborhood? Where is he challenging you? There was a time when I, I got very, very close to, to limiting God in an area where I, I, I think it's very dangerous to do that with church. You see, I had a friend. He wasn't yet a Christian. And I was in that wrestling moment of, shall I invite him along on a Sunday? But I arrogantly thought, I don't really rate the preacher. He's not very funny. I'm not sure he's really going to cut the mustard. I think my friend's not going to like it, not engage with it. It might actually be a backward step if that happens. So I consulted with somebody else who knew this friend, a friend who knew this friend, and, and he was pretty concerned as well. He said, I'm not sure it's going to be good for their journey and, and where they're at in, in their walk with God. It's going to freak them out, singing these songs. How he's going to think that's really effeminate. You know, he's a man's man. This is not really him, this scene. And there might be some weird person in church that talks to him, and it's going to scare him off and all of that sort of stuff. Don't, don't. Uh, but in the end, we decided, you know what, let's, let's just invite him and see what happens. He seems up for it. He came, and I can still remember it. It still moves me. I sat somewhere in the middle towards the back. I feel like in my mind, it's like a moment, like a, a photographic still. Because as the preaching was happening, I looked over anxiously thinking, how is this landing? Oh, is he going to be offended? Is he just going to be completely bored? I looked over, and tears were streaming down his face he was meeting with God he had an encounter with the living God nothing else could explain it and in a few months he became a Christian and he's still going strong for the Lord today are you in danger of limiting what God might do even here in this place where does your thinking need to be upgraded to business 
Christian business class, Christian first class, by God, trying to lift you up, you know, to think a little bit bigger. What about what's coming up after Easter or Easter itself? What might God do with your friends at Easter if you invite them? What might he do with the blessed term that's coming up after Easter? A whole term, a third of a year given that we might seek to bless all the people around us to the glory of God. What might he do in London? What might he do in this space here throughout the week? Could we have a a healing afternoon, a healing room where people, person after person, might get restored from their sickness? Or a job club? Or a life skills group? Or could it be possible that we should be dreaming of evangelical churches across London coming together for a mission week? That every year there's a week in London and I tell you, you can't get away from the Christians. The God Squad is on the move and everywhere you look, there's good news about Jesus and we're just loving people into submission, right? (laughs) Couldn't that be amazing? Come on, where do you need to dream a bit bigger? Yes, we need to be faithful in the small things. We need to not despise the day of small beginnings, but we need to dream because it honors the Lord. Because He can do immeasurably more than we ask or even imagine. That leads me to the third point. It's good to embrace God's no. God's no. Are you? Are you? Rejection is really hard, isn't it? If I ask for a show of hands, I bet everybody in the room right here, you've experienced rejection. It could be in a relationship, somebody just says, I don't like you, I don't want to love you that way, I don't want to live with you. There's all sorts of ways that we feel rejected in life. It could be a job, you get passed over and just say, you're just not the right fit, I'm really sorry. You're not gifted enough, you're not clever enough, you're not qualified enough, you're not the right person. We, um, when we sent our book to the first publisher, they rejected it. It's hard, isn't it? It's not nice, it hurts. Even more so when it comes to God, though. It feels like a betrayal. God, aren't you meant to be on my side? God, aren't you meant to serve me? Aren't you meant to do good things to me? Aren't you meant to make my life happy and easy and more glorious? God, 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 what are you doing? I'm angry. I'm bitter. Where have you? You've let me down, God. What's going on? And there's a moment when you get tested to see, is this a God of your own creation? Or is this the holy, almighty God? You see, when you drive a car and the road bends, you bend with it, don't you? The same is true for God. You don't just say, I'm going to build my own road and I'm going to drive my own route. No, you follow the way and you go where where, where he goes. How was David able to do this? Because he was a servant. Because it wasn't about him. It wasn't about his ego, his name, his fame, his reputation. He was a servant. This is the great test of the Christian life, I think, that God would ask you today. Do you love me? And would you still love me if I withheld this thing from you? Would you still love me then if I, if I withheld this dream, that plan, that relationship, this thing which is so important to you? And I said, no, not for you. Sorry, that's for somebody else. How would you feel about that? Could, could, your, could your faith sustain that? That's the great test, real test of, of maturity. That's what's happening here for David. C- can you do that? If God says, no, not, not that. How is David able to endure all of that? Well, it's because he wasn't the center of his story. That's what this passage teaches very clearly. Did you notice that? The repetition of the word I. 
It's not David, it's God. You could have written the story very differently about who's the hero. David, he's amazing, takes on the giant Goliath. Isn't he amazing? Look what he's accomplished. Look at the victories that he's won. But the true story here is God says, I took you out. I raised you up. I made your name great. I was the one who was with you. I was the one who gave you the military victories. I was the one who did all of this to you. And I am the one who will make your name great. I, 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 I. It keeps coming. This is what God is saying to all of us. That when he's the center of the story, it's a great story. But when we try and live our own stories, they're so rubbish by comparison. We become self-serving. He must do this for me. He should do that for me. Other people, they're there to serve me because I'm at the center of everything. No, 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 no. God must be at the center. Who's the hero of your story? Who really is the hero of your story? The Lord promises to build a line David to do something that's just utterly brilliant but it moves from a verse 11 into verse 12 and he God basically says but it's not going to happen till you're dead mate <laughs> it's like, oh I don't get to see it not in my lifetime oh I've, you know it's <laughs> me like but that's the way of the kingdom I don't know if you know that that's the principle of the Christian faith death brings life death is the doorway through which life comes it's always always the way death to a lesser dream so that there's life greater life in an even better dream that's what's happening in this passage it's truly it's truly wonderful and so it's not about him it's about the ones who are going to come after him and it begins with Solomon Solomon the son who's going to build this physical temple it's a temporary thing. It's a picture of something. It's a shadow and a type of what is to come. But he's going to build that. And then there's going to be another king and another king and another king and another king. And they all have one thing in common. They're all going to die. But then verse 16 comes and it talks about the forever of God. It says it not once but twice, just so we'll get it. There's a forever coming. There's a king who's going to come who's not going to die. He's going to fulfill this. He's going to live forever. And of course, we know this is Jesus, and he comes, and he's the true embodiment of the temple. The temple was always the place where heaven and earth come to meet together, the place where you can gain access to God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the focal point, the living embodiment, the walking temple, the very presence of God and he comes to live and then to die on a cross to pay the penalty for sin, to be the ultimate sacrifice in the temple. All these temporal sacrifices that are taking place in that temple. He himself is the sacrifice. He says, doesn't he, you're going to tear down this temple and in three days it's going to be restored. And he's not talking about the physical building. He's talking about his own body. The ultimate temple. And he's raised to life because he dies for sins. Yours and mine, not his own. He's the innocent one. Death can't have a hold on him. So he's released. And he then reveals his resurrected body to hundreds of people who are so convinced of it, they're willing to die to proclaim him. He's God and death's been overcome. You can kill me. It doesn't matter. I'm going to live forever. And then he ascends into glory. And the Father and the Son, they release the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, go down. 
And the church is born in power in that moment. And every single Christian from that moment on become part of a temple themselves of the Holy Spirit. A temple of the Spirit of God where heaven meets earth to reveal what he's like to the world. And together a collective temple of living stones coming together where around Christ the cornerstone and the Holy Spirit powerfully present in our midst. And this happening through year after year from that moment across all aspects of every country of the world, the temple everywhere, not just a building in Jerusalem for a particular place in time. But whoa, you can start to see how awesome, how much bigger God thinks than we do. How did David respond to all of this? What did he do? It says that he sat before the Lord. Verse 18. He simply sat before the Lord. I like to think of it as he sat on his legs. He sat on his doing. All that desire to do for God. He he sat down on it. He simply sits. What else can I do? I can't do anything. You're everything. You do everything. All I can do is sit in your presence. And be still. I think that's a word for many people today. Be still. You know, my kids, it's a few years ago now, to be fair to them, at the dinner table, they would get so fidgety on their chairs that sometimes they would actually fall off and injure themselves. That's really awkward as a parent in that moment because my instinctive reaction is just to laugh at them. <laughs> it's really bad, isn't it? It's like so ridiculous. It's just, just, we've been telling you not to fidget, and now you've hurt yourself. You've fallen off your chair. Uh, what are you doing? But I think it's a picture of what so many of, of us are like. We're so fidgety, busy, distracted by the evil device that is called the mobile phone on this and that on life. And I want to earn my salvation. I want to prove to God that I'm worthy. I want to, to please him because I'm getting up early to read my Bible this morning. And God would simply say to you, be still. Psalm 46, be still, be still and know that I am God and I will be exalted. He's reminded, I don't really need you, but I love your involvement and what I'm doing. I welcome that, but I will be exalted. I am God. (laughs) I think of Psalm 23 where the good shepherd God has to come and say that sometimes he has to make us lie down in green pastures. Maybe he needs to do that for some of you. It's a command, be still. He needs to literally make you lie down, make you stop trying to do and just to be with him. I think that this be still is a hyperlink that takes us back to the Old Testament further to Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, to the story of the Exodus people there. And they're on the run. They're coming out of of tyranny and oppression under the satanic-like figure of Pharaoh, uh, and they're being rescued out of all of that slavery. And of course, it's a picture of coming out of darkness and despair and discouragement, hopelessness and bondage to sin and evil, and out into the wonderful light of the gospel. That's what's going on in this this great picture. And they're stuck because they're surrounded by mountains, and then there's sea ahead of them. And then chasing behind them now is Pharaoh and his armies and his chariots. What are they going to do? And God speaks through Moses and simply says this, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And some people think that 
Salvation by grace alone isn't in the Old Testament. God does everything. Unmerited favor, unearned grace, given to us freely. We need only be still to receive. This is what all of these eyes communicate. God does the heavy lifting. I do this. I did that. I did that. I did that. I did that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Not you. I'm going to do all of that. It's the grace of God. And that's why that biblical Bible scholar Boffin, that's why he says, this is it. This is the most important passage in the Old Testament for him because it's revealing justification by faith, by grace alone. Let me read it to you. In this astonishing promise, he says, Yahweh has signed a blank check to the David enterprise. This is not to say there will be sanctions and punishment, but they are not terminal. This is a powerful, clear articulation of justification, being made right, in right standing with God, justification by grace, unmerited favor, in which the works, the doing of David or Israel are no longer decisive. Why? Because God loves unconditionally. It's verse 15, but my my love will never leave you now. That's what God says. It's amazing. So what does the Lord require of you then? Nothing. Nothing. You can't earn your salvation. You simply have to receive it. That's true. But it's not the full picture because what does the Lord require of you? Nothing but also everything. Everything. You can't pay him back. You can't earn it. But you can honor him and respond rightly to this salvation that he's given you. You were a spiritual leper. Now you've been cleansed and set free. We're right to, to honor him, to give him thanks and praise with our lives. How do we do that? Well, how did David do that? He gave extensive preparations for the building of the temple. There was a no, no, David, that's not you. But he embraced another call within that to say, yes. Yes, I can say, no, I accept that, but I'm going to say, yes, how can I help? How can I serve? What can I do to help the next generation? If it's not me, I want to see this done, but it doesn't need to be about me and my glory and my significance. So he gives of his wealth. He holds a giving day. He seeks to hear from the Lord to get instructions about how to build the temple so he can pass it all on to the next generation. Because he's not at the center of the story. God's at the center of the story. And he's happy about that. What about you? Do you need to embrace God saying no to you in your life? Maybe because you're meant to serve someone else's vision. Maybe because you're meant to support what the next generation are going to do. It's not about you anymore. You've got to step down and live your life to serve others and help raise others Death is a doorway in the Christian life. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, life cannot come. Jesus is the eternal seed who falls into the ground and dies at the cross so that eternal life can be raised up. This is the principle of how we live. The call of the Christian life is come and die that you may truly live. Die to your proud seeking to be at the center of everything. Die to your ego, die to your fame, die to trying to make your name great. And then you may truly live 
as you live for the glory of God and what he's doing, not just in your life, but, but so much bigger than that, down through the generations. And this is the pattern of the Christian life that I think we so often forget. A daily death and repentance. Not just at the moment that you come to faith, but an ongoing story where you recognize that's not right, that's wrong, that's sin, and I'm going to confess it, and I'm going to turn from it, repent of it, bring it to the Lord, knowing he'll forgive me, but I want to kill sin. The Puritan said, John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So we kill sin so that life can come. We get rid of it. We get rid of all the weeds and the rubbish to make room for God's goodness and the fruit of the Holy Spirit to grow. That's the pattern of the Christian life. Death brings life. That's what we're called to. The final point, though, is the one that kind of energizes and empowers us to do all of this. It's that it is a joy to enjoy the Hesed love, to experience it, to this is the loving faithfulness of God or the steadfast love of God or the loyal love of God. It's in, the, in the original Hebrew language here, it's this word hesed. And it's a love that God is saying in verse 15 that will never depart from David or his descendants. You can't, you can't get rid of it. It's going to be there. Wherever you go, it's going to follow you. It's going to be with you. You can trust it. You can rely on this love. And now it's guaranteed to every single believer who trusts in Christ. This hesed love will never leave you, never forsake you. A really great illustration of what this word means comes from the book of Ruth. It's a book in the Old Testament, and it's the story, tragic story, it begins with of a family who, because of famine in the, in the promised land, feel like they can't trust God to live in that, so they leave town. And they go all the way over to a place called Moab, which is an enemy nation to the people of Israel. They give up. They say, life's too hard. We want comfort. It looks like it's, the grass is greener over there. We're going to go over there and live there. And what happens as they step outside the will of God is that, very tragically, is that Three of the men in the family all die, leaving three widows. Now, two of those widows come back. One of them is a Moabitess. She's called Ruth. And it's helpful to think of what, what isn't Hesed love. What's the opposite of that? Well, it's ruthlessness. It's the absence of Ruth, of what she's like. And Ruth comes at a moment to define what Hesed love is from a human point of view, when she speaks to Naomi. Naomi is a bitter widow. She's lost everything. She's having to go back to her people with her tail spiritually between her legs, saying how wrong she was to leave all of that stuff. She's, she's lost everything. Her faith has been massively shaken. And this is what this Moabitess woman says to her. Do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also. If anything but death parts me from you. She's absolutely committed. She says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to support you, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to care for you. No matter what you do to me, I'm never going to leave you. No way. Only death can part me from you. And she's described by the end of the book as being better than seven sons. Seven, perfect number. 
in the Hebrew world better than seven sons to Naomi because of the way she lives to care for her. It's a description of what God's love is like, only his love never dies. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8. He says, nothing can separate you from my love. And he tries really hard to labor the point because most people, I think God knows, are going to follow speaking through Paul and not going to get this. So he goes again and again and says, nothing, nothing can stop, nothing can break this love. And he starts to list everything, hell, you know, angels, demons, all this kind of stuff. So what could break this love? What could come in the way? Nothing, nothing. He's saying, nothing can separate you from this love. I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. You can't get rid of me. I love you. I'm committed to you, no matter what you do. And this is extraordinary that God would show this love even to David. Now, we like to romanticize David sometimes at this point. You know, he's the giant killer. He's, he's a cool kind of guy, isn't he? It's pre-Bathsheba gate, so sometimes you forget, you know, yeah, God knows that's coming. Um, you know, murder, rape, or, all that adultery. But already at this point, he's a polygamist. He's been highly presumptuous. You know, he brought the ark back into, <laughs> into Jerusalem on a cart, the same way as the Philistines didn't read what the Bible said, the Scripture said about how you should transport it. Someone lost their life. Because of his presumption like that. And then he goes before King Achis thinking that he might get the help of this, this, this enemy of Israel ruler. And instead he realizes very quickly what a mistake he's made. So he pretends to be insane and drools into his beard. You can read about this. This is actually in the Bible. He did that. Can you believe that? And then worse, he became a mercenary, killing machine for the Philistines. The enemies of the people of God. Ouch. And yet God, because it's all about grace, comes to him and says, I want to do something so extraordinary to your life. I want to bless you. Because he wants to make it abundantly clear to everybody. It's not about you being a good person. It's about his being a great God. And how does David then respond finally to this? He's sitting before the Lord. What does he say? He says the words which I think should be the strap line of every Christian. Who am I? O oh Lord, or O oh Sovereign God, that you. Who am I? Who am I? I don't deserve any of this. This is utterly wrong. Who am I? That should move you if you're a believer. It should touch your heart, these words. In fact, if it doesn't, I might say, if I can, with respect to you, that it might be a sign that your heart's grown cold towards God and he wants to rekindle it again today. These words deeply move me. Who am I? Who am I? I was so lost. I could barely look another person in the face. I was so discouraged. I had such a, a low self-worth and value. I practically hated myself. But he found me. He found me and I just was so arrogantly convinced that Christianity was rubbish, that it was a self-help system for naive people who couldn't cope with life. That's what I would tell people, yet he found me, and he took me, and he raised me up, and he brought me to this church, and I, I was sat probably about where Biola sat there now in that chair, uh, in the cafe. That's the first time, and for many weeks, that's where I sat, the back row of this church, an absolute nobody, and he, here I am. 
Who am I? Who am I to be married? Who am I to have kids? Who am I to be alive? Who am I to be saved? I'm so thankful. Are you? I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for what He's done for me. I'm so thankful He saved me. I'm so thankful that He loves me. I'm so thankful that He'll never leave me. I'm so thankful that He's prepared a place for me in eternity in glory. I'm so thankful I'm not alone and He's given me a church family. I'm so thankful for this church, not for this building, but for you, its people. I'm so thankful for the friendships and the love that is here in this place. I'm so thankful for the privilege to serve and the opportunity to make His name great in this city. What a mission we're called to. It's incredible. Are you? Are you? So let's honor him. Let's praise him. Let's not have small-minded thoughts about him. Let's repent of all of that. Let's say yes when God says no. Okay, redirect me. I want to serve others. And let's enjoy his extraordinary love and faithfulness. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love to us. You are wonderful. You are glorious. You are beautiful. There's no one like you. Forgive us, Lord, where we've been ungrateful. Forgive us, Lord, where we've forgotten your goodness to us. Remind it to us as we worship, as we take communion in a few moments. Lord God, we pray. Help us to celebrate. Help us to enjoy this hesed love, this loyal love, this unbreakable love that is there. And if there's anybody here listening who doesn't know that, who isn't but bathed in it, basking in its glory. We pray, open their eyes. Lord, please let no one miss out. Let no one lose out. Lord, soften the hardest of hearts. Help us, Lord God, to turn from sin and evil, to die, that we might truly live and truly live for your glory. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.